It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson, what would normally be a question and answer episode, has mighty few questions, but a lot of tech news, including reasons you should change your Facebook password right now. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 300, recorded May 11th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 117. Security Now is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash security now. And be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. And by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look more professional. Get started with a free package at FreshBooks.com. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security, privacy, online. And the man of the hour, as always, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hey, Leo. Good to see Great you. Great to be Steve. with you as always. And we Episode your 300. Camera. Yeah, we should do something, party or something. Yeah, um, well, that's not one of my favorite numbers, though. I mean, it's not 256 or 512. <laughs> we get to 512, baby. You're going to like it. You know, we uh, we were trying to figure out what to, we're going to sell bricks in the new studio. People could put their names or their company name or their Twitter handle on it or whatever. And huh. we decided to make the prices of the new bricks $128. And if you want the the paver, the square paver, that's $512. And if you want a, <laughs> a copy of your brick, it'll be $64. So we're you'll like that. <laughs> Very nice. Those are good numbers. Absolutely. Yay. Um let us, we have, uh, it is nor nominally a Q&A episode, but you have uh, thousands of things to talk about. Well, yeah, there so much happened this week, um, and some interesting things that I wanted us to take our time and talk about, that I was afraid if we tried to, like, rush through those in order to get to a regular large set of questions, that we we would not do the front of the show justice, which... I really, in this case, there's really some interesting things to for you and me to talk about. Um, but th so I had a couple questions that were actually inspired by um, questions that I saw through Twitter, but which, which I've also seen in the regular Security Now slash feedback page. So I'm, I'm going to sort of wrap up some some things at the end from previous shows, you know, sort of in the Q and A format. But otherwise, let's just talk about what happened this week because there was all kinds of stuff. Oh, I love it. And I love it when there's sure we've news. got a I'm sure we got a good podcast for everybody. We will indeed. Before we get to the latest security news, let's talk a little bit about our good friends at squarespace.com. You know, it's a kind of appropriate to talk about Squarespace and security now because a lot of 
uh, news these days is about hacks to blog platforms, to uh, websites. In fact, the number one vector these days uh, for malware into people's computers is through hacked websites. So it's really important if you're going to have a website that you, uh, you have a website that isn't infecting your customers and your friends and your readers. Squarespace is so great for that because it's both hosting and software. And it's kept up to date by them constantly. You don't have to worry about that. They do all the patching. You're running on their servers. Their servers are remarkably secure. They're, let me put it this way. You don't have to worry if your site is on squarespace.com. You don't have to worry about it going down because of traffic. You don't have to worry about anything. You just have to worry about making a great site full of great content for your readers. You start with these incredible Squarespace templates. 60-plus professionally designed styles brand name designers but they that doesn't it doesn't stop there you customize them with simple you don't have to be a, a web design guru here you can see these sliders that's how you design how you slide around the width of your site how the column layouts the horizontal navigation if you know css and javascript don't worry you're not locked out you can of course uh, do your style sheet by hand but i love the fact that you can get a great site up and running in just seconds. In fact, that's that's my request and uh, and uh, suggestion to you right now. Go to squarespace.com slash security now. Click the Try It Free button and set up your first site. You'll have it for 15 days. All the features, including the iPhone and iPad app, a seamless blog importing from all the major URL or uh, APIs, movable type, typepad, WordPress, blogger. You'll get V6 the minute it's out. You'll get all the patches automatically. It's secure, it's sweet, and it's used by so many. You don't believe me. Just take a look at the examples. Thousands of sites. Using I believe you. Yeah, I believe. Using Squarespace. It all looking great. Squarespace.com slash security now. Give it a try today. This is a site for, I think it's a dog walker site, Wagging Tails. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm not sure what it is. Servicing Hoboken and parts of Jersey, yeah, dog walking and pet sitting. See, you really—if you're a—if you're a business, a small business, you don't—you don't exist unless you have a website. What? A, look at this guy. What a great job he's done. Client login. How do I get started? Request information. This should inspire any small business. This guy's a dog walker, and has a site that makes me puts me to shame. Thanks to Squarespace. Squarespace.com/slash/security now. Who knew? All right, Steve. Let's uh, let's get down to work. We've got business to do. First of all, did you read? Did you finish Rasinovich's book? Uh, yes. A couple days later, you'll remember that I like made myself go to sleep <laughs> Tuesday night because I was at a, I was at fifty percent of the book and really enjoying it. And a couple by a couple days later, I had finished it. And so I'm glad you reminded me of that because I want to tell everyone that I recommend it without hesitation i as i was you know i was thinking about your the surprise you expressed at you know like mark can write and if 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 it said written by michael Crichton on the front i wouldn't have thought twice i wouldn't have thought you know he was turning senile or he'd lost his ability or anything i mean it i don't i mean mark can write believe it or not not only you know computer code 
and deeply understanding the, the technology of Windows. He's regarded, as we know, as probably the person who's more about Windows security than anybody else there is. I mean, more than Microsoft employees, because he was on the outside poking around um, and creating all those cool utilities back in his sysinternals days before Microsoft bought them. Um, anyway, the book is, is, as you'd expect, is factually accurate and I, 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 wish, I, I wish I knew that everyone who would read it had read it so I wouldn't be concerned about spoiling it. But, um, you know, the title is Zero Hyphen Day. And so from what I said last week, we can imagine that this is Mark's very interesting, really gripping portrayal of of how it could be that that something really bad happened on a global scale so it's it's i mean it's really interesting and i and and as i said last week it felt to me like you know like our podcast a fictionalized version of the stuff we talk about so my sense is our listeners in particular probably probably more than any other audience i can imagine would just if if you're if you're a book reader if you like fiction uh, and you like and you listen to this podcast I I mean there's the criteria it's uh, I, I recommend it without hesitation it was just very pleasant and not Hamilton length um, you know, this <laughs> I'm is, in the <laughs> middle of the dreaming void and I know what you mean when you say <laughs> Hamilton length oh my God but you know Dr Mom read this book and uh, uh, on your recommendation she's a regular in our chat room. And she, she said the same thing. She said, I missed it. I missed it like a good night's sleep. <laughs> I couldn't. And by the way, she said she was terrified by it. And that's, I think, interesting. It, actually, Leo, I found myself thinking, uh, I don't want the bad guys to know this stuff. I mean, he, yeah. he went further than we had. One of the chilling things he does is he reminds us of how pervasive our use of computers has become oh, it's, it's, in this book by, by citing specific examples. And for example, there was the, in, in one case, and this doesn't give much away, but I guess we have an advanced plane, the 787, which not only does the computer completely fly it so that there are no more cables. I mean, it's all fly by wire, but computers designed it. So, so the computers are designing it and then, and then flying what it is that they designed. Well, what happens if something goes wrong with that? <laughs> so, come on, I mean, Steve. And on and on and on. So, I mean, what I know you? what Liz. I know what Liz meant. I mean, it, it is. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, this just tells them how to do this. I right. mean, th th he go he goes further than we have gone in the show, and. It's wonderful. So there's actually in that in 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 uh, in that light uh, the fly-by-wire airplanes. There's actually a debate. There's uh, one airline, which shall remain nameless, that its pilots' union insisted that a pilot be able to do anything, completely override that airplane. Um, and uh, the other, what happens as a result is pilots can do things that will crash a plane. And so the real question is, um, you know, I guess you got you put a human there for a reason. They should be able to override, but uh, should a human be able to do anything? Is the, well, is and, the and in fact, it, it sounds to me like Mark did a lot of research for this because yeah. 
I mean, he talks about exactly what you're saying. He, uh, he talks about the, the, the psychology of the pilots and how in, in demonstration after demonstration during their training, they were showed that no matter what situation the plane was in, it would do a better job of recovering than they could. Doesn't that sound like War Games or Titanic? <laughs> or I mean, haven't we seen this movie? We've seen this yeah. movie. Yeah, well, and I mean, so he has a trailer, I, I by just, the way, on his we, on his website now for this book. I'm glad. I yeah, I'm, I can't wait. To read I just it. I would love to be able to say more, but it would it's not fair to the people who like the idea of like the kinds of things we talk about in this podcast, fictionalized by like the leading Windows security person in the world who like who also can tell a story and develops characters. I mean, now sitting here, I know all these people that Mark created and their interrelationships, I mean, vividly. I mean, he's really a yeah. fiction writer. Well, but he's, you know, they say write what you know. <laughs> he sure knows this stuff. Yeah, but it wasn't just... Oh, I can't wait it to wasn't, it. You know, it wasn't just dry, like, you know, a recitation of security nonsense. I mean, right. there's a full plot... There's, you know, I just can't say more. But I mean, there's, there's, there's yeah. bad guys. There's murder. There's, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's really there's assassins and oh, it's just wonderful. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's I don't I don't you know I'm I'm so pleased to have read it and to be able to tell our listeners because I'll bet you. Oh, I mean, I know that my, my that our sci-fi recommendations because you have followed me with with, with oh, Hamilton yes. and everything. Yes, and and of course uh, Michael McCullum at Sci-Fi AZ. I get so much feedback from people who are saying, "Oh, I'm so glad I got turned on to this." So so here's another one. You know, I don't know how much Mark, how much more Mark will crank out, but I'm reading number two if there is one. Zero day the book dot com is the website. You can buy it there, and it's always a good idea to. Uh, buy the book through the author's website because he'll get, in addition to royalties, usually he'll get like an Amazon uh, uh, a Nice. Uh, a -Life. What do they call it? Affiliate, right? Affiliate fee. So, you know, it could mean a buck fifty or more uh, per book more for him. Kindle. Yeah. Did you read on the Kindle? I, I did, yes, because, yeah, you know, I'm just a Kindle fanatic. And I, and I did get a tweet from uh, Steve Wooding in Hampshire, UK, a listener who was disappointed to see that it wasn't available outside the U.S. On the, on the Kindle store through Amazon. So maybe it just hasn't happened yet. I, uh, I can't imagine know, why. Publishing is such a um, Byzantine and medieval system. You think it, it, it's the publisher who oh, says... Oh, it's always the publisher. Uh, it's publishing rights. It's just, it's always is. It's one of the, it, there's no audiobook probably for the same reason. And, um, and sometimes the audiobooks are available in one country, not the other. Kindle editions in one country, not the other. It's because the U.S. publishing rights are different from the, you know, overseas publishing rights. Well, and we do know, for example, that some Kindles will allow themselves to be read in their audio yeah. mode, and it's blanked, and yeah. you know, it's blocked in in many others. So great reviews too, by the way. Uh, Fifty-two oh, really? five-star reviews. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I'm really glad. It. I like. I said. I'm. If if there's just like, you know, it was like it's it's exactly like your reaction. There's nothing as I'm reading it, even as I'm reading the second half after. Hearing your comment last week, you're, you're surprised. I mean, and I was. Well, you don't also, expect a guy but, like this to be to, to be a good writer, to be honest. I know. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> but, look at, but on but, the other hand, look at Michael Crichton, 
who was a physician first. I mean, it's, it's not yes. unusual. Scott Turow, who was a lawyer first. I mean, you don't have to be uh, born and bred to be a writer to be a great writer. Well, and Crichton, a lot of Crichton's work was writing what he knew. Right. You know, because he was an MD, you know, and he gave us Andromeda strain and he understood the right. biology and, and, and the molecular level thing. Well, here Mark has done the same thing. You know, he's given us a book which would satisfy any listener on this show of, I mean, in terms of its, of, of what he tells us. And yeah, I'm, I can understand Liz being <laughs> a little Still, frightened. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it is, it is. I'm, I'm thinking, whoa, you know, it, it's too possible, the, the scenario he paints. Chatroom saying Asimov was a biochemist. John Grisham was also a lawyer. So a lot of lawyers become writers because nobody wants to be a lawyer. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> the happiest lawyers I know are all ex-lawyers. Well, Ad Grisham's books, you know, also... He knows the law. Know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mary Jo Foley gave it five stars on Amazon as well. So, I, yeah, okay. Sold. Yeah. That's great. Oh, they're Amazon reviews. Oh, good. I'm going to yeah, go yeah. back. I, I, I thought I didn't know Give where they Amazon were. Give it an Amazon review. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do that when I'm through with the podcast. Um, we had a blessedly small... Patch Tuesday. Yes. Just a, few, a couple days ago. There were only two updates. Uh, one contained two fixes. The other contained just one. Um, so, which is nice. We get to take a breather following last, last month's once again record-breaking Patch Tuesday. Um, and the, the, one of them was critical, but really nothing to worry about, even for, well, for, typical, for, uh, for typical end users. Um, it only affected enterprises who are the typical users of Windows Server 2003 or 2008. And it was, it was a vulnerability that was found in the Windows Internet Name Service, WINS, which is not even installed by default. This was an early protocol that Microsoft used back in the dawn of the Internet, and DNS essentially replaced it. You know, the, the Internet's name service domain name service so it's not installed on machines it's it's a problem if you did have a, an enterprise system using server 2003 2008 and had the winds service exposed to the public that is to the public internet that would be a problem um uh so this was disclosed responsibly microsoft patched it and they rated it critical because you know if the, you fit the scenario, then you're in big trouble. You need to get this thing fixed, but most people aren't going to be. And then the other two fixes in the other one patch uh, were two things in PowerPoint. And I don't know why Microsoft rated them important instead of critical, because they were remote code execution. You, you go to a website that launches a PowerPoint on you, and it can run code. But... For whatever reason, Microsoft. Oh, I guess it's that you did get prompted. You, you. There was a. It wasn't an automatic thing. You would get prompted by PowerPoint. Do you really want to run this? And there wasn't a way around that. So I think that's what allowed them to drop it down a little bit. So, anyway, uh, worth worth doing as always. But uh, you know, <laughs> way more tame than than the the patch blast that we received a month before. Yeah, that was a record. Yes, it was. They they broke. They well, in order to keep breaking your record, you have to keep. 
doing worse and worse. Yeah, we don't want a record. <laughs> we're, yeah. not, we're not, we're not gunning a, for a record. A, let alone a succession of records <laughs> yeah. where each one escalates the prior one's yeah. record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, this is a really interesting development, I thought. Um, Tor, which we've talked about, the Onion Router... And for, I know that we're, we're picking up new listeners all the time. So if you don't know the acronym TOR, which is the Onion Router, it's definitely worth going back and listening to the podcast we did on it. The technology that was developed, and this was developed with the help of funding from our friends at the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that are powerful privacy advocates, um, the technology is such that your it, it's an anonymizing system which is which which is encrypted and anonymizing so that when your traffic gets out onto the internet ultimately it's impossible I mean really truly impossible and I don't say that often to to know where it came from. And the way they, the way it's done is that there's a series of hops. I'm going to just summarize the podcast, but really go back and listen to it. And if you want more, a series of hops that your traffic makes among Tor servers, essentially, or or like Tor routers that are that there, there's a large network of them. So your your particular traffic will choose some number of hops and routes, and you have control over that. At, at your end, each of these routers publishes a private key. I'm sorry, publishes a public key, has a private key, publishes its public key. Knowing then the order in which your packet traffic is going to hop among these routers, you, you successively encrypt your data one after the other in the reverse order that your traffic is going to be hopping among the routers. So you first encrypt with the last router's public key. Then you encrypt with the next to the last router's public key. Then you encrypt that. With, so you've got multiple levels of encryption, thus this concept of an onion, you know, the notion of layers of an onion. It back, yeah. so but, but you also you, see there the... Uh, the negative of this, which is there's considerable overhead. Yes. It slows you down yes. a little bit. So you then send this big blob, this onion, off to the first router. Well, what's cool is that it has its private key. Only it can decrypt the, the what, what's inside that layer, but it can't decrypt anything more. Because that next layer is encrypted with the next router's public key can only be decrypted with its private key. So all that all that router can do is take one take a a wrapper a, a shell off the onion and forward it to the next one, and it can do the same thing. It it can only take off the outer wrapper that it receives and then forwards it again. So at every stage. The, the intermediates can never see your traffic until you get to the final end point where it takes 
that 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 final router takes the the lat it, that takes the encryption that it knows how to remove, which was because it's the last router that was the first encryption, finally decrypting your traffic and it puts it out on the internet. So so the point is that this is a big network of these. All of the traffic among them is encrypted. Um, oh, and I should mention also the next router hop and all the IP stuff is also encrypted. So it's not even the case that an earlier router knows where it's going to go after it goes to the router it sends it on to. That's contained with successively within these layers. So it was really designed beautifully to, to allow people the freedom of accessing the internet anonymously. The problem is that you have to actually use it. You need to download the Tor system and a, and a client. Then, for example, if you're using Mozilla, you, uh, you know, Firefox, you need to uh, use its add-on in order to link to that. And there's a bunch of configuration stuff. And, and the, the point is, it's all a lot of overhead. What's happened is the Tor folks have recently just announced that they're going to fork the Firefox project from Mozilla and integrate all of the Tor technology into their own Firefox. Oh my goodness, that's interesting. Yeah, well, so you'll have it, a you'll essentially have a browser that does it automatically. Yes. Yes. Wow. And they're excited because it dramatically simplifies the use of Tor. I mean, you know, I've never bothered because I don't really have anything, but it's like I could see having a copy of that around if for some reason I like for I like I'm doing some security research and I wanted to poke at something, but not, but not, you know, leave my identity there. The other thing, because it would be a essentially a Tor slash Firefox browser is they can do other anonymizing things to the headers. And, I mean, you can imagine it would turn on the DNT. Uh, I'm just joking because you couldn't be tracked through this anyway. But, um, uh, Wouldn't that be but funny? <laughs> it, would, it, would, it would give them, it, it, you know, it, I guess what's happened is there have been times when, when the Tor folks have been a little frustrated that Mozilla's priorities have been different from theirs. Or things weren't fixed as quickly, um, and or they've been waiting for Mozilla to do things that, that they wanted. And so they just decided, okay, we're going to fork the project and and integrate Tor into this browser, which that's the beauty of is open, really, open source, you know? It, it's, that's why we it, love open source. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, it, it, it affords this. And yeah. so, anyway, I'll keep an eye on this. It, it is, it's been announced, but it doesn't exist yet. So as soon as it does exist, I will be sure to let our listeners know because it'll just be cool to have this, you know, it'll be a lot slower. As you said, there's a lot of overhead in doing this. But just to have a, you know, a browser as, as simple as opening Firefox, you know, a state-of-the-art browser, which, which automatically uses Tor and deals with all of the overhead, knows how to access the network, and where you know that, that you are absolutely untrackable. I, 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 I guess what I like about it, too, is that there are certainly so many people who have a bona fide, useful, sort of innocent interest in doing this that 
can't handle the technology. You, you know, all of the tour downloading and configuring and add-on and all that, that, you know, that's enough off-putting that they don't end up getting the benefit of it. So now it'll just be much easier. Um, By the way, we, you know, we have a whole show on tour. If you want to know more about tour, yes. go back to the archives uh, because there's a lot to talk about with tour. And there is one, there's a little bit of a vulnerability in the sense that the end point can, can be compromised. Um, yes, I'm glad you said that um, and because it's worth mentioning here in, in, this dis in this discussion, although we did talk about it then. And we've right. talked about tour from time to time since. Right. And that is that those the so-called exit nodes of the Tor network, you can imagine that law enforcement would be very interested <laughs> yes. in in the traffic to and from those specific points. So in in the same way that any VPN provider, you know, you wonder if you're routing all your traffic through a VPN provider, well, you know, they end up being someone that bad guys or even good guys would, you know, law enforcement types would be interested in making, you know, in, in like surveilling because it, there's some reason people are using Tor. There's some reason people are using a VPN, hopefully just for security, but it could be for nefarious purposes as well. So you're right, Leo, there, there, is, that, there is that side to it. Um, okay, this is weird. Uh, we know that we've got problems right now uh, with uh, uprising in Syria. Um, apparently, the Syrian telecom ministry has been, <laughs> has been perpetrating a nationwide man-in-the-middle attack against their citizenry for Firefox. Um, it, what, what, what they're doing is... Um, uh, the, the EFF got involved. Uh, someone named Mohammed, uh, who is a Syrian inside Syria, brought this to their attention and shared his logs and um, was able to dump his certificate out in order for them for the EFF to take a look at it. And what they found was that the, uh, that what Mohammed had was the real IP of Facebook, which means that this was not using DNS spoofing mm. or tampering in order to give him a, the wrong IP. He had the right IP, which meant it had to be using routers and proxies, which, which means that someone is actively filtering the traffic in and out of Syria. And in the case of HTTPS access to Facebook, and by the way, we'll talk a little bit about that later, uh, which uh, Facebook reports that 9.6 million users are now using Facebook over HTTPS thanks to the fact that they've added that option that we've talked about, the, the persistent use of, of SSL encryption over um, connections to, to, to Facebook. Um, so somebody is intercepting that traffic and returning an unsigned Facebook certificate. Oh, wow. So you get warnings. I mean, any browser who that, that sees a, a certificate 
claiming to be from Facebook, which has not been signed by a certificate authority that the browser trusts, will pop up a security warning. Of course. But many users don't really understand what that means, and so they click past it. And in clicking past it, they have, they're allowing essentially their government, in this case the Syrian government, to monitor, to, to, to decrypt and then re-encrypt in a proxy, any, you know, in, in a transparent proxy, all of their traffic that, that passes through in order to monitor what they are seeing and posting on their supposedly secure Facebook page. Obviously, there's no security here. So it, it is a concern that many governments do control certificate authorities. Um, I don't know. Apparently, Syria doesn't and doesn't, couldn't talk anyone into giving them a certificate for Facebook, <laughs> which is a good thing. Because um, that would be bad to have. Because then you there. wouldn't know, right? It would be. Then, it would yes. To then, be, uh, then exactly. Well, actually, anyone who was using the um, the very cool certificate auditing tool I talked about last, last week. Yeah. Trying to remember the name of it. Just a minute here. Let me look. Add-ons. It's at the top of my list. I remember. Certificate Patrol. Um, I'm still using Certificate Patrol and really like it. So anyone using that um, uh, would be notified, be, even if Syria had a properly signed certificate, because Certificate Patrol, it, you know, before Syria did this, and this has only been done recently, if you had ever connected with Facebook prior to that time, then Certificate Patrol would have cached the certificate that you had. Then when Syria tried to do this, well, first of all, not only, oh, oh yeah, if Syria tried to do this with a valid signed certificate, Certificate Patrol would say, wait a minute, this doesn't match the certificate you had last time. And it would present them both to you and allow you to then look at what's going on. And, and, and I mean, it does some nice forensic analysis. So it would say, this certificate is not signed by the same certificate authority that signed the Facebook certificate you were using before, it's unexpected that this the, the the site you are connecting with would change certificate authorities. I mean, certainly it can be done. Actually, I'm planning to do it because I think I'm going to drop VeriSign after seeing that Digicert is be is signing so many. Well, in fact, they're signing Facebooks. Really, uh, that's yeah, the one that's, that's less expensive. <laughs> yes, way yeah. less expensive. Awesome. And yeah, I mean, so I so I could afford, I I could do EV certificates. Yeah, if it's good enough for Facebook, how much? How much are they? I think they're down to like three hundred dollars. Well, we really should do it for uh, Twit then. Yeah, we are going to start with a new website. We'll, we will allow people to log in and post stuff and so forth. So I think we should absolutely do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I and and for me too, GRC. I can't. It's it's right. like I, I mean, VeriSign is thousands, and it's like oh, oh, and it's not just thousands once. It's thousands every every time you have to renew, yeah. which we know is a good thing because it does keep bad certificates from from never expiring, and and they need to. But boy, you know they're just raking in the dough. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> um, I wanted to bring to our users' attention an interesting study that uh, some researchers in Belgium and France did. Uh, this was actually picked up by the register over in the UK. 
Um, but there are many sites, I guess like 100 file, file hosting sites like RapidShare, File Factory, EasyShare, which allow users to upload files of any size, typically large files, um, and, that, and then they give those files a unique URL. The idea being that, it, I mean, the URL almost looks sort of like a little crypto key. It's not, it's not short like a little bit.ly key where the whole goal is to have it short. It's normally, you know, looks like it's very unguessable. And that's the point is they're saying that you don't have to worry about anybody else getting a hold of these files because look at that URL. No one's ever going to, you know, figure that out. Well, these researchers conducted a couple of experiments. They put some of their own web spiders on these sites and collected thousands of private files. And wow. They then, yes. So so just I mean, by random randomly guessing well, or maybe they looked at the maybe like a, at a succession exactly. They looked at a succession of the URLs and saw what the pattern was, and it's obviously not very good because if it were really good crypto and it was sufficiently long, then the the the, uh, the chance of just by brute forcing, basically they're brute forcing the URLs. The chance of brute forcing a sufficiently long URL would never make it worthwhile. You but just there are many of these services. Do they say which ones? Well, um, they said uh, a significant percentage of the of the hundred file hosting services they studied made it trivial for outsiders to access the files simply by guessing the URLs hmm. that are bound to each uploaded file. Wow! And and RapidShare, File Factory, and Easy Easy Share were mentioned. So. So, so, and so the second thing these researchers did was they put their own files up with beacons in them that would allow them to determine if somebody else downloaded them. Oh. They never gave out the URLs. And um, quoting from this, they also used the sites to store private files that contained internet beacons so they'd know if anyone opened them over a month's span. 80 unique IP addresses accessed the so-called honey files oh 275 times. Oh, dear. So that's, see, that's a reasonable thing is, well, one thing if we can brood it, but is anybody trying this? And apparently they are. Yes, which, of course, indicates the weakness is already being exploited yeah. in the wild wow. to harvest data many users believe is not available for general consumption. Wow. So I wanted to give a heads up to all of our listeners that, you know, this is an instance where you pre-encrypt what you are going to post up there. And then through a separate channel, you let, you know, your recipient know the passphrase for the encryption so that you could still use those these these file hosting services, but you know, don't just put a spreadsheet <laughs> of, of you know important financial data up there and assume that no one is going to ever get to it or see it. Uh, we have evidence now that these sites are being literally they are being dredged for for information that people would not want to have. Oh, that just tells made, you something. Wow. Made public. 
Wow. Uh-huh. Isn't that interesting? I don't, you know, I use Dropbox and other stuff, but I would not, I, I agree. I, I think it would be, it would be imprudent to use this for something uh, private. But I would yeah, have always actually, assumed that, you know? I have, I have a new acronym. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, fortunately it's P, P-E-E. -E. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it's pre-egression encryption. Oh, pre-egression so, encryption. Yeah, so you, 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 or you, you pre-encrypt before anything egresses from uh, your location. I think that's a good but, acronym. I certainly yeah. won't forget it. <laughs> Pre-egression encryption. Wow. So, okay, I loved this next story because I couldn't have... It, it sounds like, you know, someone's listen, been listening to the podcast who, who did, this, did this report. First of all, it's based on a, a new bill that has been submitted by Senator Rockefeller, um, and this is the do not track bill, the, you know, legislation that, that, that's the thing I've been saying we need. It, it is the enforcement of the DNT header, essentially. Um, and this was a story uh, uh, carried by uh, Cecilia Kang in the Washington Post. I just want to read this because... Like I said, I couldn't have written this any better. Senator John D. Rockefeller on Monday introduced an online do not track privacy bill that would allow consumers to block internet companies from following their activity on the web. The do not track online act of 2011 comes amid increased attention by lawmakers on creating privacy rules for the internet. The White House has called for such rules, but has not, not supported a specific mandate that would block companies from tracking users. Rockefeller, chairman of the, of the Commerce, Science, and Teleport, te, tra, Teleportation, I wish. I wish we had and, a Teleportation Bureau, yeah. And Transportation <laughs> Committee. <laughs> I've, been, I've been reading way too much science fiction. Uh, said in a statement that recent reports of privacy breaches show that companies have too much freedom to collect user data on the Internet. His legislation would force companies to abide by a consumer's choice to opt out of such data collection. The Federal Trade Commission would draw up specific do-not-track rules. The agency and state's attorneys general would enforce the law, and the legislation would apply to mobile phones, a growing platform for access in the Internet. It says, quote, I believe consumers have a right to decide whether their information can be collected and used online, Rockefeller said in a statement. This bill offers a simple, straightforward way for people to stop companies from tracking their movements online. Already, Microsoft's forthcoming version of Internet Explorer and Mozilla's Firefox browsers have been redesigned to allow users to block marketers from tracking what sites they visit and their other activities online. Now, we know that's not quite true because they don't actively block. They simply request. And thus has been the controversy of the DNT header. It's because everyone says, yeah, but it's optional. People can ignore it. And it says, so, so going on in the article, it says, but without a law, no Internet company is required to honor the consumer's request, privacy groups said. Quote, this bill will put regulatory support behind these industry initiatives and make sure that online providers listen to the many consumers who want to clearly say no to online tracking. Um, 
This complements the comprehensive online privacy legislation introduced by Senators Kerry and McCain last month. Um, so, um, I just wanted to bring this to the attention of our listeners. Um, this is, I mean, it's, it's, it is what we need in order for the DNT header to, to happen, essentially. And, now, you know, it would not, um, it would not prohibit a website from tracking a incoming requests IP address, would it? No, and so and Leo, I've been thinking a lot about what you said when we talked <laughs> yeah. about this, and 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 twit, and in in when you look at the detailed legislation, and, and I have, although I'm not going to bother our listeners with it, and because we know that at this point it's just been a bill that's been submitted, it's been it's been talked about being uh, set up, uh, being hooked on to Kerry and McCain's um, bill. As, as an amendment to it in order to incorporate this technology. But they all really do talk about information gathering. And, I mean, like, you know, address and age and like, like specific criteria rather than just, you know, like using their IP address in order to disambiguate queries. So, you know, I really think that what Pod, PodTrack is doing and which, which you know, you, your, you, and your industry depend upon for developing, you know, good numbers. I think that's going to be okay. Well, and not just me, but every website uh, in the log keeps track of an incoming IP address. Um, True. Uh, I mean, that's just what happens. You. Uh, True. And I don't know how you would turn that off. That's how browsers work. Otherwise, they can't have a conversation. True. And I guess the the problem is, you know, when I was talking about, well, it'd be easy to just bring up a dialogue box to say, you know, you know, we're PodTrack, we need to count you in order to, to credit Tech TV with your download. The problem is iTunes is downloading podcasts autonomously. Right. So it's unable to do that. Yeah, I, I just don't, I don't think it's going to be a problem. I'm an, I, I mean, from, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I, either because I just think it would break the internet if you said websites cannot record an IP address of an incoming request. That would just break websites. It would break everything. Yeah. Well, and remember, we're talking, there's certainly a difference between first party and third party. Right. There, there's a general understanding. Well, in fact, Google and Facebook are screaming at the same time about newly introduced California legislation. Uh, this is a Senate Bill 761 that was introduced by Alan Lowenthal, um, who's out of Long Beach, who is, um, he's got legislation which is, is proposing that companies doing business, doing online business in California would be required to offer an opt-out privacy mechanism for consumers. And, uh, I mean, and, and frankly, uh, there's a long list of people who signed a letter objecting to this. Google, Facebook, Yahoo, American Express, Experian, Allstate, Time Warner Cable, the MPAA of all people, Chamber of Commerce, and like 20 other companies have, have said, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, they said in their letter that Senate Bill 761 would create an unnecessary, unenforceable, and unconstitutional regulatory burden on Internet commerce. The measure would negatively affect consumers 
who have come to expect rich content and free services through the Internet and will make them more vulnerable to security threats. I don't know how you get some of that. I mean, it seems like it's, you know, their, their uh, response is being overblown. But, but clearly there's a difference between people going to a site and third-party tracking, third-party data aggregation. Now, the problem is, of course, that, that Google's, you know, Google's existence is, is owed to the fact that they're able to, um, to well, as if, especially with the purchase of DoubleClick, they're able to, the, to serve ads that are interesting to people. I think it's been clever that they're able to use the search terms the user is, is querying in order to choose ads. There you're not really having to build a history or a profile as many of these other media companies are. So, again, I, I think that what Podtrack is doing is just totally benign compared to this. But, you know, well, and the good news is we, we'll end up with something somewhere in between that, that, that the legislators are happy with and that, the, you know, Googles and Facebooks of the world are saying, okay, you know, we can live with that too. I don't know what the answer is going to be, but there, there really, is, really is growing tension on the Internet over this issue. Well, it's not going away. I'm tense. <laughs> I would, you know, okay. <laughs> I yeah. just, I don't want to go out of business. Um, we get a lot of free stuff based on advertising, including all of the things you listen to on Twit. And um, I don't want to go to a paid model. But advertising does require, you know, it's a, it's a quid pro quo. It, need, it needs to have numbers. Yeah. And I, I think that, I don't think, I think people understand that, um, I would hope. But the problem is, if you if you if it's opt in, uh, that's problematic. Yeah. Well, okay. Now, in your case, you're not interested at all in who your listeners are. You're interested in not double counting them, right? But you but you don't care we what don't their demographics them. are, their no. age range, no. how many children they have in the household. Right. That's the kind of stuff. Which really creeps people out when they when 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 knowledgeable people look at the at the extent of right. of what this data aggregation ends up meaning and the fact that it ends up being de-anonymized ultimately. Remember, right. we went through that period of time where um, where you'd like you'd have free offers and you'd sign up for something. Well, those free offer sites were using advertisers and providing all of that non-anonymous information behind, you know, behind the um, scenes back to the advertisers and being paid heavily for it because it meant so much. So, I mean, th that's what creeps people out. Right. And I think, and, and that's what, what we're, I mean, that's the tracking, you know, it's not just, Hey, I went to a website. I wanted to forget that I was there. It's no, it's like, I want, I, I, I want, um, Double click not to know where I've been in all in all the sites I've been today. Right. Interesting. So, we live in interesting times. We really do. You know, it's always uh, a risk when you start a new business, uh, or, or especially in a new area like this. Uh, you know, there. I just read a uh, article about a California state law that essentially uh, puts money transfer companies out of business if you're not doing it with a a credit card because. 
you have to get a license from each state. <laughs> each state can be lots of money. Well, Half a well, million and, dollars in the state of California. And iTunes blocked Bitcoin. Yeah, that's going to put Bitcoin said, out of business. They said they were an, an inter, that Bitcoin was an intermediate currency. Yep. And and that that ran afoul of some iTunes regulation. Yep. And so there you there will be no Bitcoin app for for the iPad yep. or iPhone. Yep. Which is annoying. Um, a, uh, a, a hacker, I guess he has to be a hacker because of what I'm going to explain here, named uh, Gordon Mattern, uh, who has a site called purehacking.com. Uh, he wrote, and this ended up being a big story, about a month ago, I was chatting on Skype to a colleague about a payload for one of our clients. Completely by accident, my payload executed in my colleague's Skype client. Oh, boy. I decided to investigate a little further and found that the Windows and Linux clients were not vulnerable. It was only the Mac Skype client that seemed to be affected. So I decided to test another Mac and sent the payload to my girlfriend. She wasn't too happy with me. <laughs> I pwned her computer. Although, if she's his girlfriend, she already knows what he's up to, so... She wasn't too happy with me as it also left her Skype unusable wow. for several days. Wow. At this point, I figured out what was needed to execute code. So I put together a proof of concept using Metasploit and Meterpreter as a payload. Meterpreter is something we've never talked about before. It's a, it's a piece of Metasploit uh, that allows for the easier creation of DLLs for injection into, <laughs> into compromised processes. So I was like, okay, fine. So he says, lo and behold, I was able to remotely gain a shell mm, yeah. on the remote Mac. Yeah. So after a lot of trouble trying to find the right person in Skype to notify... I don't know whether that's going to get better or worse, Leo. We haven't mentioned on the podcast yeah. yet something that I'm sure everyone Call probably Steve already Ballmer. knows. He could fix yeah. it. Yeah, that Microsoft bite bought Skype for yeah. eight point five million dollars. Billion, yeah. Mm -hmm. I will say, yeah, billion. I will say that I'm I'm happy that we'll be moving to video. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if Microsoft will be a bad steward or anything. In fact, I, yeah. But uh, and we'll still use Skype when we can't use video. But uh, it's nice yeah. to have uh, alternatives. Yeah, um, and I think although you've got to wonder if they'll if they'll be as diligent about worrying and ma managing and maintaining the other platforms. One would hope. Yeah. Anyway, so he says, after a lot of trouble trying to find the right person in Skype to notify, I was able to get the correct details for the security team in Skype. I notified them on the security vulnerability and I was given the standard, thank you for showing an interest in Skype security. <laughs> <laughs> We are aware of this issue and will be addressing it in the next hotfix. And he says, that was over a month ago, and there has still not been a hotfix released. The long and short of it is that an attacker needs only to send a victim a message, and they can gain remote control of the victim's Mac. This is extremely wormable and dangerous. Yo. Pure I don't like the word wormable. I don't know what that, that means. Was it. It's not good. And that was what the news covered was Skype for Mac is wormable. wormable. What it means is that a non 
because many people leave their Skype clients running all the time and Skype up. And when you are in Skype, you can see all the other contacts. This could be a flash worm that would, that would run through Skype and in a matter of minutes take over all the Macs that are interlinked through Skype is what we're saying. <laughs> that's that's really amazing. They did uh, they did uh, they didn't force an update but they did offer an update. Well, he says <clears throat> he says pure hacking won't give specifics on how to perform this attack until a patch from Skype is released. However, we will give a full disclosure after Skype takes action or a reasonable responsible disclosure period has elapsed. Now, in his own update, he has confirmed that Skype has fixed this issue in 5.1.0.922. Right. But you can't. You have to go. You I guess. Push it. No, you have to actually say, "I want an update." Well, no, I tried that, and it didn't give it to me. I'm I'm back on uh, 1.914, yeah. and pri and I fired up my Skype, and I said, "Check for update dates," and it said, "No updates are available." Huh. So I think you have to go to Skype and and download new Skype in order to get it. It didn't it didn't not only did it not offer it, but when I said check for updates, it said nope, got none. So hmm. well, I'm at nine two two, so I can't test it over here. Oh no kidding. So you're already updated. Well okay. I did it, yeah. As soon as I read that story, I updated it. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I run Skype now. This is only Skype Wait, for the Mac, by the way. You don't want to be part of the flash no, worm that no. thank you. <laughs> uh, but this is again only on the Mac and, and for those yep. who are curious, we don't run Skype uh, we run Skype on Windows. Right now that's what you're on, for instance, is a Windows instance. But so, uh, many anyway. of our users many of our um, uh, hosts use Skype for the Mac. And yes. most of them have actually downgraded because they hated five so much they've gone back to two eight. So yeah, that which yeah, is by the way it, safe. They did mess up the UI. Oh, on, they screwed on, it up. Yeah, uh, that's okay. interesting. And now, uh, if I on my other Mac where I'm running two point eight, it says new version of Skype available, and it's going to nine three five. So wow, okay. Who knows now what's happening? So they so it sounds like they probably did push out something quickly because they were they were aware that you know having a having a flash worm through interconnected Macs not such on a good Skype, thing yeah not, not that would not good not no. a good thing no it might in fact it may have lowered their purchase price to to Microsoft <laughs> I don't know I don't know how it could get any <laughs> higher but wait yeah it took out all the Macs huh maybe that wouldn't be well anyway uh, so. Um, Facebook what? applications <laughs> yes. turn out to have been accidentally leaking access to third parties for all time. Again. Uh-huh. Okay. So th this, was a this was revealed by Symantec, who provided an analysis. They said, according to Symantec's analysis, the problem was caused by a flaw in the old Facebook API which apps use to authenticate their account access. When a user grants account access to a web app, like, you know, a Facebook app, the app is given an access token, which it is then able to renew. 
Symantec said that this access token can be mistakenly inserted into a URL returned by Facebook and provided to the app server, which then receives it. And um, so it will, it, um, it, okay, so I got myself tangled up here. If the app, um, if the app loads an ad banner or analytics code as the next step, it will send that URL, it, which includes the access token in the referrer field of its HTTP request for the content. This referrer data is likely to have been stored in the log file on the advertising or analytics provider's server. So, so we've talked about referrer headers before, and this is like this was a classic oops privacy leak. So what happened is a Facebook app would identify itself to Facebook and say, I, I need access to this user's account on their behalf, and they've been and they've given the, and, and the user has given the app permission, which the user would have. But the user has been assuming that the app would not leak that permission. And so what happens is if the, the app then receives the URL containing the access token, which it needs in order to impersonate the user, if, the, if, if that app then showed an ad, then as happens with referrer fields, the, U, the, the referred by essentially would be the URL that the app used, which contained the token, which allows the user, which allows the account to be accessed. So essentially apps have been leaking an impersonation token that allows third parties, advertisers and analytics companies, you know, I mean, apparently there are like logs out there with these HTTP referrer um, headers in them, because that's one of the things that, that web servers log, which, oh, and these never die. These don't time out, they don't get stale. This is a, a cryptographic token that allows anyone who gets it to impersonate that Facebook user. So all Facebook users have to change their password. That's what this comes down to. What? Yes. Like now? Like now. <laughs> um, what semantic? if I don't use apps? I don't use any apps. Then you're okay. Then you would not have had that course, How do you know what's an app? Exactly. Any of these little goodies. Apparently, it's... If something says they want permission to act on your behalf, they want access to your wall, they want access yeah, to your... I use a whatever. lot of that. Okay, well, those are apps. So, <laughs> so, But that token's a one-time use token, or is it a permanent token? It's a permanent token. Oh, fudge-sicles. I know. Now, okay, so... <laughs> that means these will all be logged out, too, right? All these uh, apps I'll have to re-authenticate, uh, or no? No, uh, because so, they will have to reauthenticate, but they're doing that anyway. Oh, okay. So, so what happens is if you change your password, then you instantly obsolete all of this past leakage oh, crap. such that the app has to come back and get a new token. 
And why is it this a huge news story? I know. Why? Why isn't this on the front page of USA Today? They have six hundred million users, all of whom were just compromised. Yeah. What can they do with this password? What can they do with this? I mean, what, what, what anybody who has one of these tokens and Symantec's blog makes it very clear that server logs all over the world are full of these tokens. Crap. Are are able to impersonate the Facebook user? They they're able to do anything that the app that the that the user gave the app permission to do that at, that that permission has then been leaked <laughs> i can't believe there's not a big banner on facebook that says you have to change your password i i don't understand i'm i'm baffled by this that means i mean i'm thinking of my son every one of his friends in high school they're not going to know about this no now, maybe the reason this hasn't made, been, been made more of is that, well, first of all, Facebook would rather not. Well, they, yeah. They have fixed the problem, and they've also moved to a new authentication system. They'll be using what's called OAuth 2.0, OpenAuth 2.0. We're going to have to do a podcast about this in OAuth detail. OAuth is, is incredible. I love OAuth. Yes, um, Stina and I talk about it every time we get together for coffee from, you know, Yupiki fame. <laughs> You're such um, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's talk about Olaf. <laughs> um, so the good news is that Facebook is really tightening things up. Um, they have implemented OAuth 2.0. Good. They're, it's not mandatory yet, but they're, they're are, they are going to sunset. It would have to be mandatory with the apps, not with you, but with the apps that are requesting your authentication. Correct. Correct. So no, nothing will change from the user standpoint, but there'll be much tighter authentication using OAuth 2 for the apps. And they'll be bringing in, they'll, they'll, they'll be shortly bringing online an SDK, you know, a software development kit for apps, telling them, we, we're lowering the boom on you on September 1st of 2011. So you have between, I think the, the app, the SDK is supposed to be available in June or July timeframe. So a couple months from now, but all, all and, they're, and, they're, and it's already running. I mean, Facebook themselves has switched over. So, you know, they're, they're making good improvements um, and all apps will have to switch to that. In the meantime, they are no longer leaking the this user token in the URL of the, that they provide to um, apps that are wanting to authenticate and then act on behalf of users. But all the old ones are not do not expire. And Symantec has said the only way to fix it is for the user to change their password. To invalidate this, so my sense is, it's it's broad and it's distributed, um, but I mean it's a it's you you know change your password. <laughs> I can't believe that this isn't like I mean this is wow okay I'm I unless I'm misunderstanding what they can do with this I mean they can't all they can do is post to your wall stuff like that. They the whatever permissions is, you gave with these apps. Yes, the that token is absolutely restricted to whatever it is you gave the app permission Although, to do. This is what the bad guys do. They post something on your wall that yes. says, "Hey, I you got to see this video." 
yes. of the new Twit Cottage, and it links to what looks like YouTube, and then it says, oh, your flash is out of date, and you say, oh, I better update it, and then you've got malware. So that's really, it's things like that. I mean, I know, you know, my all my, my profile is public, so I'm not worried about that. My well, son yeah, is. It, as, yeah, as you said, Leo, it is people, for example, going to your Facebook page that your page then infects. Right. And we're, um, I didn't. Could it, it do that? Make... Could it do that? A spontaneous infection? Oh, yeah. Oh, crap. Um, I, I was just going to say, I didn't. Uh, we talked last week about Google, Google Images, the problem that we're seeing with Google Images. Right. Where the images are malicious. Injection. Yes. That's not, and, and that's not coming from Google, but on the image search, you get an image from the offending page, which has an, an infection in it. Exactly. And I did see reference um, in some uh, forums in the last week where uh, people were commenting about the problem with Google Images and that just in hovering over the image where it zoomed in and like magnified it, that right. grabbed his computer. Fudge. I mean, that, that and that's the kind of thing, of course, Facebook, you know, it's just a natural. Yes. And so so here's the problem is that the, the, the scenario would be the bad guys who now know about this will get the server logs of, like, advertisers or anybody with an affiliated relationship to these apps. And now they know to scan the referrer field for these tokens. And those tokens will allow them to act as if they were the app to which the user had given permission. Now you could revoke the the app permission and that would protect you too, but it's easier just to change your Facebook password. Yeah, especially since you probably have hundreds of app permissions as most people do. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I I just again, I, I I'm stunned that this isn't I mean, holy cow. I don't have a date here. I don't know how old this is, but this is just did just happen. Well, I'm changing my password right now. I mean, why not anyway? It's a good thing to do from time to time anyway. Yeah. Um, the, the, the title was Facebook Applications Accidentally Leaking Access to Third Parties. And, whoops. Wow. Oh, and that's, that, that's actually the title of Symantec's blog. Came out yesterday. Okay. So it's been just recent. It should, there should be a big banner on Facebook saying, Please, change everybody, your password. change your password. Yeah, you're right. They really ought to step up and take responsibility for this. Because, I mean, otherwise it's going to be, it'll never get enough attention. Users won't change their passwords, and there will be diffuse attacks. There will be, you know, where these logs are available, bad guys will, will pillage them and sort through them, find the tokens, and then get up to mischief. Uh, I'm trying to find, of course, you can't find anything on Facebook. I'm just trying to find uh, in my account settings uh, where I've given authorization See apps and websites. So you have to go to uh, account. This is ridiculous. <laughs> account privacy settings. Apps and websites. It's down at the bottom, of course, not where you'd think it is. I just went through this with my son last night. He said, I, I, "People can see my pictures." I said, "Well, yeah. You didn't know that?" He said, "No, because the default <laughs> is they can see his pictures." Yeah, so I showed him funny. how to change that so only friends could see his pictures. Now I got to say, and by the way, Henry. Change your passwords. Uh, just my, password. Just your master login master password. password. Yeah. So Pulse, Eventbrite, Empire Avenue, Seismic Web, Foursquare. Uh, no, you, there is one button. Turn off all platform apps. 
But then I'd have to change all of them. I'd have to log them back in. So it's easier just to change the password. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yes, and speaking of getting up to no good, I just thought, oh, I wonder how many Fire Sheep downloads we've had so far. This is Fire Sheep-like, isn't it? Um, kind of the same result. Well, yeah, I mean, it is an, it, 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 it is a, an impersonation attack. The bad news is this has been happening since 2007, Leo. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the, ever since Facebook began making apps available... The, if the app was in an if the app was hosted in an iframe, then this iframe enabled the leakage, which, and then if the if the app ever pulled any third party content, the referrer field leaked that URL that the app used to the third party, and that is a static persistent token that allows that third party the same access privileges as you had given the app. So, I mean, for all time, until like a few days ago when Symantec said, uh, gee, Mark, uh, you got a problem over here. Wow. I'm just but like, anyway, I'm just like stunned by this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We are approaching one and a half million downloads of Fire Sheep. Last Shh. time... I looked, we were at 1.3, and we are at one point where 1,492,829 when I last looked, although it's every time I looked, uh, like an hour before that, it was at 549, so about 300 per hour seems. And so uh, we'll, cross, we'll, we'll, we'll cross one and a half million downloads of Fire Sheep here um, in another week or two, probably. Wow. Now, I'm just this depressed. Is... <laughs> I'm just so depressed because nobody, you... this is, this, uh, this is massive and nobody's going to change their Facebook password. My wife isn't, my kids aren't, their friends aren't, nobody's going to do this. Yeah, you know, um, I wonder, I wonder that Facebook couldn't obsolete those tokens. Of course, of course they could, but they don't, they won't because they know they would get a hundred million phone calls. Mm. Can you imagine the cost when you have? Well, it's like LastPass last week. You know, the site was down for a couple of days because they told everybody they had to change their right. password. And they probably only have a few hundred thousand users. And by the way, they did exactly the right thing. They didn't even have evidence. They just they didn't even know that there was an, an infraction. They he just thought there might be. Yes. And Facebook, knowing this, just blithely goes along. I wish I could delete my Facebook account. I can't. Because it's what I. Well, you could just change your password. Though. I'm gonna, well, I know, but I, but, but, th but this is the this is the tip of oh, the iceberg. Oh, I see. I, I see. Being, uh, you, you, you're again upset enough over yeah. this. Well, that, and it's yeah. the tip of the iceberg. We don't know what other crap's going on on Facebook. Yeah. We will never know. They're. I mean, obviously, they don't want to tell you. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it's. I mean, in the same way that. Our financial institutions were too big to fail. Maybe Facebook now they is, is too, too big to tell everyone to change their password. <laughs> <laughs> it would just bring down the internet. Uh, it would. It would. Yeah. There you go, Vault. Okay, right. so right. Juniper Networks, that's not a security company. They're a big iron router manufacturer, essentially. Juniper Networks has been around forever. Um, 
they produced a report, which I'm just going to, I've pulled some tidbits from, um, and they called it their mobile threats report for 2010 and 2011. Um, so this is a little historical, reaching back, looking at, at what they've seen before. So the key findings of the report, they called it, uh, one is App Store Anxiety. They said the single greatest distribution point for mobile malware is application download. Yet the vast majority of smartphone users are not employing an antivirus solution on their mobile device to scan for malware. I mean, we don't really have that yet. Um, Wi-Fi worries. Mobile devices are increasingly susceptible to Wi-Fi attacks, including applications that enable an attacker to easily log into victim email and social networking applications. The text threat. 17% of all reported infections were due to SMS Trojans that sent SMS messages to premium rate numbers, often at irretrievable cost to the user or enterprise. Oh, yeah, that's a hell of a scam. Yeah. Yeah. Device loss and theft. One in 20 Juniper customer devices were stolen, were lost or stolen, requiring locate, lock, or wipe commands to be issued. So, so 5%. Mm. Risky team behavior, 20%. <laughs> Using <laughs> yeah. Facebook. 20% of all teens admit sending inappropriate or explicit material from a mobile device. Oh, everybody does that. And then finally, those darn cameras. And then finally, droid distress. The number of Android malware attacks increased 400% since summer of 2010. That's to me a percent. I don't want to know that. That's what that's four times. If there was one, that's four. What I want to know the number. Give me the raw number. Yeah, good point. Um, and then quoting from the report, they said these findings reflect a perfect storm of users who are either uneducated on or disinterested in security, downloading readily available applications from unknown and unvetted sources in the complete absence of mobile device security solutions. And this is the Dan Hoffman, their chief of mobile security at Juniper Networks. He said app store processes of react the app store processes of reactively removing applications identified as malicious after they have been installed by thousands of users is insufficient as a means to control malware proliferation. There are specific steps users must take to mitigate mobile attacks. Both enterprises and consumers alike need to be aware of the growing risks associated with the convenience of having the Internet in the palm of your hand. Now, their suggested actions are not going to impress any of us. They say, install an add-on anti-malware solution to protect against malicious applications and spyware, infected SD cards, and malware-based attacks on the device. Use an add-on personal firewall to protect device interfaces require robust password protection for device access, implement anti-spam software to protect against unwanted voice and SMS, MMS communications. For parents, use device usage monitoring software to oversee and control pre-adult mobile device usage and protect against cyberbullying, cyberstalking, exploitive and inappropriate usage and other threats. So when I stand back and look at all of that, what I see, Leo, is an immature piece of the industry. 
You know, it's yeah. that <clears throat> phone phones are new. Yep. A and users are new to this kind of phone. You know, we're we're PCs are are much more mature from a security standpoint. I mean, now we you know all personal computers have firewalls built in. And and there's I guess there's a higher bar to using a PC securely then there is a phone. A phone just sort of, it's hard to take it that seriously. Is, it, is, that, is that what you think it is? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's also I mean, hard to secure it. So it's not... It is. It's not and, obvious, I mean, you know. You know, the, the, we know, for example, that the, the threat that users, PC users have, is going to malicious web pages. The sort of the similar threat that is still, I think, unappreciated is just malicious free toys for these phones you know i mean right. I, I have i download stuff all the time and i you know who's checking the who's checking this stuff you know? yeah i mean i you know I've, i i see something interesting for the ipad it's like ooh, there's a neat toy um yeah, do you know, we presume that apple is uh vetting these but the problem as you can see is it's almost impossible to be a hundred you can not you can never be a hundred percent sure that something is secure well, and the, the reason Android is popular is that it doesn't have the boot of Apple right. on it to right. the same degree. Unfortunately, what that also means is it is a larger target than Apple is. And, I mean, Android, I, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm sure you're seeing the numbers. If it's, I'm a bad guy, I don't worry about the iPhone. I go right after Android. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, much easier. It's the, it's the windows of the, uh, of the phone world. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Okay, now in my in another uh, this is I guess not quite my last bit of good news for the day. We have a new attack vector which is pre is presenting itself um known as WebGL. Um this is the the next generation of web-based 3D graphics. And essentially, you know, OpenGL has been around for years. It's a, it's a sophisticated, mature API, an application programming interface, to allow applications access to powerful, hopefully powerful rendering hardware in the machine. The problem is that in the same way that there's nothing inherently wrong with scripting unless you go to a malicious site, that scripts you maliciously. Well, there's nothing wrong with with OpenGL unless you go to a malicious site that uses that technology through what's known as WebGL maliciously. And it turns out it's possible. Oh, the, wow. all, all of the latest browsers are now supporting WebGL. How and interesting. Yes, and listen to this. This is the, the 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 technology of this is interesting. I want to just quote from Context Info Security site. They said traditional browser content would not normally have direct access to the hardware in any form. No, it seems and, silly on the face of it. Of course, if you drew a bitmap, <laughs> it would be handled by some some code in the browser with responsibility for drawing bitmaps. Right. This would then be likely to delegate that responsibility to an OS component 
which would perform the drawing itself, right. which is the way our stuff works. While this distinction is blurring somewhat with the introduction of 2D graphics acceleration in all the popular web browsers, it is still the case that the actual functionality of the GPU, the graphics processing unit, is not directly exposed to a web page. The salient facts are that the content is pretty easy to verify, has a measurable rendering time relative to the content, and generally contains little programmable functionality. And that's the key. An image is just that. It's an image. Um, WebGL, on the other hand, provides by virtue of its functional requirements. So this is not a mistake. This is the way it was designed. Access to the graphics hardware. Shader code, while not written in the native language of the GPU, is compiled, uploaded, and then executed on the graphics hardware. Render times for medium to complex geometry can be difficult to determine ahead of time from the raw data, as it's hard to determine, it's hard, it's hard to generate an accurate value without first rendering it. A classic chicken and egg issue. Also, some data can be hard to verify and security restrictions can be difficult to enforce once out of the control of the WebGL implementation. This might not, this might not be such an issue except for the fact that the current hardware and graphics pipeline implementations are not designed to be preemptible or maintain security boundaries. Once a display list has been placed on the GPU by the scheduler, it can be difficult to stop it, at least without causing obvious system-wide visual corruption and instabilities. By carefully crafting content, it is possible to seriously impact and the OS's ability to draw the user interface or worse. The difficulty in verifying all content and maintain security boundaries also have potential impact on the integrity of the system and user data. So what these guys are saying, and they have done proof of concept, they have been able to blue screen people's machines by visiting a, a web page with maliciously crafted 3D graphics. And the problem is that in order to do, in order to do what, 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 what as we know, GPUs are very powerful. Essentially, the web server is loading code into your GPU, which it then runs. And, and their recommendation, and, and actually US CERT, US CERT has recommended looking at that at the page that I provide a link to here and disabling WebGL wow. if it is present on your browser. That bad. The, it, it is that exploitable, apparently. We, 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 we don't need to say it on this show, but uh, just to reiterate, uh, uh, blue screen is always uh, the first step to uh, pwning a computer. Uh, if you can crash it, then you just have to figure out you know where to write the code <laughs> it's not so hard exactly yeah you it's a matter of finesse after right. you've demonstrated that oops you're yeah. able to kill the person that's Can always you yeah yeah always the first step so hey, it's apparently the latest versions of firefox chrome and safari all support WebGL. oh and yeah opera's just released opera 11 which oh, yeah. uh, a, a preview that, that, that supports it uh, i've used it. it's it's uh 
I mean, it's cool, but I guess it's cool. Not so and good. as unfortunately, as most cool things, <laughs> there's as a there's a dark side. There's a dark side. Hey, before we get to our our favorite new feature, attacks and breaches, attacks and breaches, <laughs> and we got one on Google Chrome of all places. Oh yeah, well the there were a lot of time. Chrome announcements this morning, so that's uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Before we do though, let me mention our friends at Fresh Books. We got a cake the other day from Caroline's, and I loved it. It's so fun. Uh, but really, that's not the reason to uh, become a FreshBooks customer, but it's a nice little benefit. Every uh, every week they have a drawing among their newest customers, which could be you, and they send somebody a birthday cake, even if it's not your birthday. What is FreshBooks? It is the best, simply the best online invoicing service out there. Their their slogan is love invoicing, and it's not a lie. It's, I mean, who loves invoicing, right? I mean, it's a pain in the butt. If you're a freelancer or if you're self-employed, it's something you have to do. Um, and yet it's always a pain. You've got to open up that spreadsheet. Or the, I used to use a word processor to do it. Uh, print the invoice, mail it. Then you've got to keep track of when you invoiced your customer or client. And then, you know, 30 days later, send them another one. And although it's just a pain. Try FreshBooks. Free for the first three clients. So that's nice. FreshBooks.com. Uh, it can be completely automated, by the way. Recurring invoices, automatic. Even automatic payment from your clients. Of course, they have to sign up for that. But they often do because, frankly, they love it that they don't have to think about it either. If you think it's bad to invoice, imagine paying invoices. But the nice thing about a FreshBooks invoice, especially the email invoices, is there's a pay me button right on the invoice. They can use a credit card or one of 11 different online payment services like PayPal or Authorize.net to pay you right away. That means you're going to get paid faster. It, of course, if you don't, there are automated late payment reminders. And yes, I know, sometimes we have clients who say, email invoices, I don't understand email. What is that? So they will also do a printed invoice for you for a slight additional charge. They, they print it, stamp it, and mail it. I always did both for the clients that I really wanted money from. It was worth it was worth whatever it was, a buck nineteen to get that invoice in their hands, and really nice for those of us who uh, work uh, internationally, as I did. They handle uh, multiple currencies automatically, the conversions and everything. It just, I mean, this just makes it so easy. Visit them right now, FreshBooks.com, free for the first three, and uh, every week they have a drawing among their new customers for a birthday cake. And, and it's really good. It's delicious from Caroline's. FreshBooks.com. Easy online invoicing. I used it for years. I invite you to try it. FreshBooks. They're really nice guys, too. FreshBooks.com. Uh, we continue on with attacks and breaches. So I thought probably that's where this should go, although this wasn't a website that was attacked and breached. It was... The, the famous Google Chrome sandbox that was breached. Um, some, some developers using two previously unknown zero-day vulnerabilities were able to break out of the Google Chrome, the latest version of the Google Chrome browser sandbox, and then not only get out of the sandbox, but then circumvent um, address space layout randomization on uh, ASLR and the data execution prevention, DEP, the two major technologies in the latest versions of Windows that are now on and active and, and used by 
Google in order to make sure that the, the components that are in their process space um, are in random locations and that they're not, you're not able to execute data. And they were able to, to using an exploit, essentially just going to a web server, able to download calculator.exe from somewhere else and run it at minimum, minimum integrity level. So, I mean, that's all, I mean, that's all you need to run. I mean, they, they, you know, their demo downloads calculator.exe, but it could also be, you know, malware like you've never seen before, .exe. Now, what's really weird is I don't know what these guys are up to exactly. Um, uh, th th this is vupen.com. Uh, you know, pen is in penetration, uh, pe penetration testing. Um, and there, uh, if you just go to vupen.com, uh, down um, sort of like the top item in the lower part of the page, that they'll talk about poning Chrome. And um, uh, Kelly Jackson Higgins, uh, who was writing for Dark Reading, sort of summed things up. She said, vupen, which withheld technical details of the bugs in its disclosure had not disclosed the bugs or any details to Google as of this posting. Oh, I don't, that's not good. I don't like it. I know. Yeah. The security firm provides details of vulnerabilities it discovers to its paying government customers. Oh. Quote, we did not publicly disclose any technical details of the vulnerabilities for security reasons. Well, good. Publicly, That's of course. Fine, but tell Google. We did not, yes. We did not send the technical details of the vulnerabilities to Google. And Google did not ask us to provide these details, unquote, says Chauki Bekrar, CEO and head of research at VU Penn. And then what of Google? A Google spokesperson said in a statement that without any details of the hack, the company is unable to verify it. So, quote, we're unable to verify VUPEN's claims at this time as we have not received any details from them. Should any modifications become necessary, users will be automatically updated to the latest version of Chrome. So said the spokesman. And what VUPEN is doing by way of proof is on their site and on many sites that have picked up this story about the Google Chrome sandbox being pwned, uh, they have a YouTube video showing them doing the exploit. Basically, going to a page and the act of going there causes calculator.exe to be launched. And that should absolutely be impossible. You know, because yeah, but it's a video that they. I mean, it's going to a local URL. I mean, it's not really a proof of concept. It's uh, it's just a video. Right. It's well, meaningless. No, precisely. So, so, so the it's problem is, proof. I mean, I don't, I don't get what it is that they're. I don't, I don't understand what it is that they're. What, what, what game they're playing? Well, they're saying we share these with our government customers, so we aren't going to tell you because you don't pay for it. Yeah. Which sucks. Yeah. Um. I mean, Google will pay them for these. You know, they've got two zero-day vulnerabilities. One gets out of the sandbox, and the second one, once out, is then able to to do the work outside in order to get an, an arbitrary executable downloaded from anywhere on the internet. I mean, those are powerful. And so one hopes that the government, uh, whoever it is that they're selling these things to, 
uh, are being responsible with them. But you know, I I I don't. Well, this, I, just, I, I, I don't know. Scratch my head on that one. Yeah, I don't. That's not. This is not good behavior. It does not seem like the right no. thing to do. Mm-mm. Um, I did want to follow up on from from one of our listeners, um, a DM Ovad. Who said? Who just sent email actually to to my company saying, "Please pass this on to Steve." He said, "Steve, from last week's Security Now podcast, I believe episode two ninety nine, which yep was last week, you mentioned the possible high temperatures while using Spinrite on a laptop. A few years ago, while preparing the hard drive on my wife's Fujitsu laptop, Spinrite did warn about the elevated temperatures of the drive and paused its processes. All I did." was to fill a one-gallon Ziploc bag with ice cubes. (laughs) (laughs) Laid it on my desk, placed a washcloth over the bag, then the laptop on the washcloth. Of course, I positioned the laptop so the location of the hard drive was directly over the ice pack. Spinrite continued, (laughs) and the hard drive's temperature remained well below the maximum. And Spinrite was able to complete and successfully repair my wife's hard drive. Don't you worry about con- condensation, though, with something like that? I mean, that's well. I think that 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 that's where the the uh, washcloth comes in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we had a nice a nice you know soft insulating layer and uh, managed to keep his drive cool. Wow. He says thanks for a great solution to many hard drive issues, Dave. It. Oh, so his first name is Dave. Thank you, Dave. PM. A lot. So yeah, thank you for the for the tip. I thought I'd pass it on to any listeners who may have overheating hard drives and need to run Spinrite anyway. Now this is a Q and A episode, but we are about an hour and a half into it. So let, we got some uh, tweets questions for you. So, we do. Um, I did want to quickly mention that Open DNS that we uh, have spoken of often yes, is love. now supporting IPv6. Oh wow, in, that's great. In, in advance support for World Day, World IPv6 Day, which is June 8th and approaching, that's next month, uh, about a month from now, uh, they are making, they're now supporting IPv6. And uh, in the announcement, they said that their IPv6 addresses for the open DNS IPv6, what they called a DNS sandbox, which is to say, you know, the IPv6 enabled DNS servers are... 2620 colon 0 colon CCC colon colon 2 and 2620.0 colon CCD colon colon 2. Wow, that's interesting. I've never seen IPv6 uh, addresses. I just, that's why I wanted to, to cool. say, state them and show them is our listeners will certainly be in the future hearing IPv6 addresses. Um, what is the, why are, is it colon colon at the end? Um, the, 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 the way this works is, and the, the, this has been well thought out, because the problem, of course, is that 128 bits is four times longer than the 32 that we've been using. The 32 that we've been using use the so-called dotted quad format. Right. Um, well, we would have to have dotted, we'd have to have 16 of those if we didn't come up with a way of compressing it. Right. We'd have to have like, you know, 16 numbers ranging between, between 0 and 255. So instead what they do is they set them up as groups of 16 bits represented by four hex characters. Oh. So first of all, we're no longer decimal. We're now in hex. We're now in hex. 
Hence CC, C, 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 Exactly. So CCC and, and there's always an, now, but I know I, I said colon CCC colon, there was only three C's, but hex for 16 bits needs four. So there's always an implied leading zero ah. if, if it's not specified. And the colon colon means that there are as many zeros in between the two colons as necessary to push each side out to the ends. Ah, so, so it's like a fill colon. It's, yes, exactly. So, so and, and the way IP space is allocated, you'll generally have like a, a left-hand side network and then a right-hand side machine or, or subnet. So, so that's what we're seeing where, where it's 2620 colon CCC and the other one is 2620 colon CCD. And then in both cases, they end with a colon, colon, two, meaning all then just do all zeros until you get down to the end. And then we have a two at the very end. And uh, two it will be a common number for, for machines and interfaces and so forth. Hmm. And I wanted to quickly say something to our listeners that I tweeted. You probably know about this already, Leo. But I, I went to IMDB on my iPad the Internet Movie Database, mm -hmm. and it said, we have an app. You know, there's an oh, app yeah. for that. There's a great app. And it's lovely. Yeah. And that's the end of my message. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I could you I know, could show it to you. Uh, I have my iPad here, but I also have my, uh, I have a uh, Android tablet, so I could show it to you. If you want to see it, I could show it to you on the, uh, on the Android tablet here. Anybody who is, yes, yeah, so it's iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, any iOS device or mm -hmm. Android. And they, you know, if you're a movie person and, you know, you and I are, Leo, and I'm oh, sure yeah. a lot of our listeners are, it's just, they just nailed it. It is simple and elegant. You're able to just, you know, like, I love that they, that they deal with, like, movies coming up in the future. You can scroll through them. You touch one. You go there. You touch an actor. You go to the, the actor's profile. It just, it, like, interlinks all of that so nicely. I, it's thought, just, I, it's joy. I thought I had it, but I don't see it here. So I'll, but I do, yeah, I love it. I agree. So I there's agree. a, the, and I guess there are other IMDB apps other people tweeted me. Yeah, but, but get the official the official one is they just nailed it. They oh, did yeah. a great job. Oh, yeah. um, in tweets from the field, um, Von Welch, who's who's at Von Welch is his handle. He he mentioned covering webcam on MacBook Pro with Sticky. Hey, before Mac you do that, can I do an ad? Oh yeah. I was, I'm sorry. I, I've been paying close attention, and here I here I am trying to log into Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I do want to get to this ad in before we have a couple of a couple of more questions uh, f uh, from Twitter, uh, but let me remind everybody about Facebook.com/slash/twit. That's where you go if you want to sign up to get 30 days free Netflix. Now, if you're not a Netflix user yet, this is your chance. If you are, tell your friends. I know most people who listen by now are, and don't forget the uh, you know of course net, everybody knows Netflix is DVD by mail and, and as little as one business day, but the the other and it's prepaid and I just love it. But the other thing is for seven ninety nine a month, you can get unlimited access to instant movies. That means whenever you want to watch. Henry and I sat down last night. He'd done his homework. That's the that's the reward now. After you finish your homework, we'll watch a movie, 
And it was fun because uh, father and son were browsing. I have it on my Roku. It's on the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, many DVD players, of course, computers, uh, the iPad. So father and son time was sitting down browsing through movies. And it was so much fun. And, you know, he's saying, I want to watch that. I said, no, we're not going to. How about this? And, no, I don't want to watch it. And we, uh, I can't remember what we finally watched. Oh, yeah, The Other Guys, the Will Ferrell movie. And it's just so fun that you could just, you know, find a movie and play it. Netflix.com. I said Facebook. I meant Netflix. I got Facebook on the mind. Netflix.com slash uh, twit. This was, I enjoyed this. Adam McKay uh, wrote it. Uh, what a fun movie this was. And I love Will Ferrell. And he does too. So this was a nice movie that we could watch together. But that's the beauty of the instant play. It's fun. You find them. It's like going to a movie store in your living room. Netflix.com slash twit. Try it free for 30 days. We thank them for their support of security now. Now you may talk to your Twitter fans. Well, so um, John Welch noted, he said, cover webcam on MacBook Pro with sticky. Mac thinks I'm in dark room and, dim, <laughs> and dims the screen. Oh, that's interesting. Turn off auto dimming under preferences slash display. Oh, that's a good point. So, yes, apparently the MacBook uses the camera also as its ambient light sensor for controlling the automatic screen brightness. Hmm. And I was pleased that, that Von Welch decided to follow up on my advice after hearing about, you know, yeah. a, another instance of, of people being spied on with their webcams. And, but when he did it, his screen got dim. So you can turn off auto dimming. Uh, under under the display panel under Mac preferences, so I just wanted to pass it on to our listeners, and and this is very cool. Um, Graham Wetzler tweeted about a a security tool or I guess uh, service that I really like. It's the kind of thing I wish I sh I could have done or I I sh I had done, uh, but now it's been done, so I don't need to. URLXray.com Give it a shortened URL, and it'll tell you where it leads. You which are, is oh, that's good. Trivial to do. Yeah. I mean, all all it does is it it goes to the URL, and the way these redirectors work is they can they return you a three hundred one HTTP moved response with a location header telling the browser where it should jump to. So I mean, the trick is simple. But obviously, instead of jumping to it, it just shows you where your browser would jump to if you had given that URL to it. And I have to say, I mean, TweetDeck does a good job at showing those um, often. But some and and I'm when people tweet me something and like l allow me to sort of get a sense for them and like what this link is they're providing. Um, I do have a, a secure machine, but you know I'll. I'll typically trust people and and click it but sometimes i get a tweet that just says oh check this out and <laughs> right, i was like right. i'm not uh, clicking uh, that honey uh, uh. and it reminds me of the famous scene from the wrath of khan um where uh somebody is telling kirk to raise his shields uh because he's not hearing anything from the oncoming starship and you know, of course, it's Khan who then blows him up because he didn't have his <laughs> he didn't have his shields raised. And the idea is, it's 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 strange, but I mean, if you get some communication from someone, you have some sense for who they are and you know yeah. what they're about and and where it might be that you're sending your browser when you click the link. 
which is just, but it's very different if you just get a, a URL and nothing. It's like, well, okay, I just, I'm reluctant to click that. So right. anyway, urlxray.com um, allows you to disambiguate these, these uh, URLs prior to going there directly, which I think is very useful. I'm going to be using it. In fact, I may just implement it myself for GRC and then we'll have one more little gizmo at GRC. Okay, so real quickly, so a couple of Q&As. Um, uh, Nico Carpenter tweeted, uh, and several people had asked, uh, who sent feedback to grc.com slash feedback, our regular place. He said, in a split handshake, how does a bad guy get the server to only send a SIN packet? And I love that because it's, I completely forgot to talk about it. Remember? Okay, so split handshake was, I talked about a week or two ago, where it was a potential exploit where intrusion detection software could be debilitated, um, essentially confused by the, by the exact sequencing of TCP packets back and forth. So normally you send a SYN packet to the server, it returns a SYN ACK, and, you, and then you ACK it, and now you're, you're connected, and, and you proceed. The, in a split handshake, instead, the server sort of ignores, basically ignores your SYN and just sends a SYN to you, essentially sort of turning the handshake around, and that's what confuses the IDS, the intrusion detection systems. So he says, how does a bad guy get the server to send only a SYN packet? Well, what I forgot to explain was that you would have to be going to a bad server in the first place. I mean, so it's a... It's an exploit that the server, that only the server you are reaching out to can perpetrate against you. So it's, it's not like, you know, bad guys somewhere can use this to, like, get Google to connect to you, but you're really connecting to them or something. It's, it's you know, if you were going to a, a site that wanted, that already wanted to do you harm, then then that site would send a SYN packet back to you rather than a SYN ACK, reversing this connection and using that in order to bypass intrusion detection software that would otherwise be protecting you. So that's how that works. Um, Luis Fernando asked, whatever happened to that capacitor idea? You announced oh, the, a while the, ago. the supercapacitors, yeah. The supercapacitor. And um, it's funny because I had myself looked and wondered what was going on. And this was a company called EE Store down in Texas. And last we heard from them, they were in the process of, of working out the details of mass production. And they've disappeared. Oh, dear. My sense is they probably could not make them, in, in, wh 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 whether it was a quality control problem, a mass production problem, a, you know, couldn't hook enough of them together problem. We don't know what. But we know they're for is, real because I actually have a screwdriver that charges super fast. Yes. Uh, what, no, you mean super caps are real. Super caps, yes. We just, yes, super caps are definitely real. And these in guys fact, were going to make it for cars. Yes, and there was a there was an automotive manufacturer in Canada right. that was getting all geared up and ready to go. Interestingly, I saw a quote from the CEO of Tesla, 
And we all know Tesla, the, the manufacturer of a, that fantastic little sports car that is ridiculously fast. One, one and I were next to each other at a stop sign a couple of weeks ago, and this thing just shot off like when the light turned green. And I thought, I mean, silently, didn't make any sound. I thought, and I, you know, I looked, and sure enough, Tesla was across oh, yeah. the back of it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the CEO stated supercapacitors are the future of automo automotive travel. This is the CEO of Tesla wow. said, yes, we're, owing, we're only doing batteries now because we don't yet have supercapacitors. But remember, I mean, the reason I was so bullish about them is that they, they solve the wear out problem and they solve the slow the the slow charging problem if you had like a high current pumping station with you know high current delivery to the car and at the pumping station probably had super caps too so it was always sucking power off the grid filling up its own supercapacitors then you bring your car in plug it in with some Mondo connector and, I mean, many, many, many hundreds of amps, and it and it, the, the charging station would dump its super caps into your super caps, and off you'd go. So I'm convinced it's the right technology, and the CEO of Tesla, who's got a lot of experience with this, agrees with me. Uh, we just don't have them yet. But many people, I mean, I'm seeing work happening. It's, there's like, there's lots of university research with nanotubes and all kinds of strange things that are like working on getting super cap technology to happen. So Good. I think we're not far from it. Good. And, and finally, Carlos Cardona also tweeted. Um, he said, you often talk about password hashing slash salting. Could you talk about password stretching? And um, I touched on it. Last week, when we talked about LastPass, because that is the, 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 we understand that when you hash a password, you pass the, the, the plain text through this cryptographic hash, and it turns it into a fixed size token that represents what you fed in. We know that when you salt the hash, you add something secret to the password and then you hash them both. And the benefit of that is that you you then don't, because, because hashes use standard formulas like an SHA-1 or an SHA-256, you know, so, or MD5 is no longer considered very strong, but the, the hashing algorithm itself is a universal standard. So the problem is if you didn't add salt, then somebody could figure out your password by brute forcing all possible, like reasonable passwords through that hash to see if they get the same token that 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 was stored, for example, when a a, a secure website had had stored the token. But by adding hash, I mean by sorry, by adding salt, you essentially create a custom hash function. That's what the salt does: is it sort of customizes the hash function so that you know, by mixing in with with with, with the the input you're providing, you're you're going to get a token out different than that than that universal function would otherwise provide if it weren't salted. So so that we have the one problem we still have is what if somebody got the salt? 
And that was the concern, unverified and still unverified, um, by the guys at LastPass. They were concerned that somebody may have gotten the salt, which would then have, have weakened the protection salt provides. So there's one more thing we can do, and that's called password stretching. And what it does is it stretches it in time rather than in size. And it's as simple as rather than hashing once, you hash many times. For example, the Wi-Fi folks who did WPA, the, 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 the current standard good secure Wi-Fi, they understood this. So they salt the hash with the access points um, uh, access point name, the, I, the, the ID of the access point, so that it, when you set your access point's name, you are increasing your security by, by mixing that salt in. And then they repeat that 4,096 times. The idea being that anybody brute forcing can't just do it once. They've got to do it 4,096 times, which slows down their brute forcing speed by 4,096. No matter how fast they can do the hash, they're going to have to do it 4,096 times per brute force attempt. And even if they have the database, they still have to go through this. Yes, yes, and that's the beauty. And for example, in the LastPass case, they're talking about doing it 100,000 times. So, <laughs> that should so be enough. So it'll really <laughs> slow it down. Yeah. Wow. So uh, this has been a great show. <laughs> and uh, I think if nothing else, I hope people have learned a little something from um, this uh, Facebook thing. Uh, uh, this is why you listen to this show, folks. Because uh, I don't know, I can't understand why this isn't being more publicized. PC Magazine just uh, published an article about it, and I've linked that on my Twitter account. Um, wow. Yeah, well, I imagine it'll, it'll get picked up by, um, I hope you so. know, Tech Meme and, and Boy Genius and those guys, and then hopefully then by the mainstream. And f ultimately, you have to imagine that, um, that Facebook will be forced to do something. Well, they've already said, oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. Okay. Yeah, yeah as I said, my, my sense is it, it, it will allow diffuse attacks, meaning that be, because it's a function of that authentication token being found, and then and that only allows them access to one Facebook user's right. account. So there's a lot of Facebook users. And, well, somebody would you know, have really most likely create a malicious app to take advantage of this if you're going to do this. Facebook's right. response, they said, we've worked with Symantec to rectify the issue, but took issue with how Symantec characterized the situation. We've conducted a thorough investigation, says Facebook, which revealed no evidence of this issue resulting in a user's private information being shared with unauthorized third parties. In addition, this report ignores the contractual... Oh, oh. oh dear. I'm starting to... Uh, the contractual obligation of advertisers and developers, which prohibits them from obtaining or sharing user information in a way that violates our policies. Oh, goodness. Well, and, 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 and part A there is... Well, we weren't looking to see if this has been happening, so we didn't see it There's happening. There's no evidence. Well, how would you know? 
Uh huh. What are you going to look back at all the logs for? It's been going on for years. And people's Facebook accounts are being hacked all the time. Gee, I wonder how. Symantec says we estimate that over the years, hundreds of thousands of applications yes. may have inadvertently leaked millions of access tokens to third parties. Yes. But we have no evidence, says Facebook. And by the way, it'd be against. It'd be a violation of their terms. Oh, they didn't read the fine print. <laughs> Oh, I'm just, I am just done with Facebook. <laughs> it's so, I'm so done. Holy cow. Just horrible. Uh, Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. There uh, at the bottom of the screen are all his Twitter handles. At SGGRC is his main Twitter account. At SGPAD uh, for uh, pad tablet related uh, news. And at Gibson Research, the official uh, account for his company, the Gibson Research Corporation. Of course, that's grc.com. That's the place to go if you want to get spin right, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. For questions in future episodes, grc.com slash feedback is a good place to go. Uh, I also uh, suggest uh, that you uh, check out his other uh, free programs and all sorts okay. of information at grc.com. Um, I'm going to do something really strange, Leo. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, my passcode designer that I've talked about several times came alive yesterday. Ooh. Um, it, and it is, I think it's going to live up to my expectations. Probably by next week, I'm going to tweak the graphics a little bit. And this is my big JavaScript program. I mean, this is my project. That my, this is, I taught myself JavaScript so I could create this thing because it runs on a web page. I this idea just hit me because the guys in the GRC user group are really anxious to see it. I've been talking about it more to them than I than I have been on the podcast. But I, it's I'm going to introduce it next week to the listeners of this podcast as something of a puzzle because Fun. it will exist but the documentation won't. And it's a little machine that I've built. And when you click things and do things, things happen. <laughs> and and it, you it, and I realized people could be, could scratch their head and, and think, "What is this doing?" Might be kind I mean, of fun. You poke it over here, and it does this, and you poke it over there, and that happens. And 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 so next week, I will. I'm sure I'll be ready by then because it's running now. I'm going to give everyone access to it and just say. I haven't written anything yet. There's no documentation, but if you want a toy to play with that involves passcodes, you can poke at this and see if you can figure it out because it's something that needs to be figured out. So that's well. We don't tell anybody. We'll find out next week. Yep, and we will. Uh, we're going to plow into randomness. How we solve the problem okay. of needing random numbers from a computer that cannot make them. <laughs> it can't. It's Part, that's not what it's for. Part two of going random. I can't wait. Steve Gibson, Thank GRC.com. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.